Is America ready for the next great flood? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Rising seas and hurricanes along the coast tend to make the splashiest headlines. But last year, the Midwest and southeastern states grappled with torrential rains and flooding that ruined crops and caused billions in damages. And according to climatologists, there's more where that came from. We can only expect it to get wetter, more extreme precipitation events. If you're not planning for the climate of 2040 or 2060, then there's going to be failure. Tracking floods, hurricanes, and other volatile weather events in order to prevent future destruction may seem like the province of data scientists and weather nerds. But those with a stake in planning next season's harvest have been doing this work for generations. When you ask a rancher or a farmer how they make year-to-year decisions, they will go and bring out a notebook with all the detailed notes about weather and climate on their farm or ranch. On today's program, we'll talk about how both data science and lived experience can help us prepare for too much water. Later, we'll look at the other extreme, when epic droughts cause people to move from their homes because crops fail and taps run dry. This program is generously underwritten by the Water Foundation. Joining me now are Martha Shulsky, Director of the Nebraska State Climate Office. Ed Kearns, Chief Data Officer for First Street Foundation, which is mapping flood risk around the country. And Julia Kamari Drapkin, CEO of ICChange.org. Drapkin created ICChange after spending more than a decade reporting on natural disasters and climate change. She herself experienced an extreme and unexpected weather event firsthand while growing up on Florida's Gulf Coast. I woke up in the middle of the night and we came downstairs and the Gulf of Mexico was in our living room unannounced, an unannounced guest. And I was 12. And the idea that we could have such a catastrophic flood event without any warning was 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 shocking. I created IC Change though after many events. Um, memorably, like I spent 15 years as a climate science reporter and saw the disconnect between people's everyday daily experiences and what the climate models were telling folks and the disconnect both in terms of how people were experiencing events and their inability to relate it to the bigger picture data as well as the bigger picture data often being wrong about their experiences in real time. And so feeling the need to kind of create a a mechanism for people's everyday experiences to inform models and vice versa, we created IC Change, uh, which gathers and mobilizes uh, community stories and micro data about climate impacts in real time. So I do wonder what would have been like if I had IC Change when I was 12 to talk about those events, uh, the no-name storm of 1993, which I think a lot of people on the West Coast of Florida will always remember. Tell me about, you know, your early relationship uh, with water and how that relates to my, your, the, the relationship now with water in Miami. Yeah, I, I did grow up in Miami, Florida and, uh, you know, grew up uh, fishing in Biscayne Bay and in Florida Bay. And uh, I loved physics in the ocean and ended up, uh, you know, pursuing a career in physical oceanography, uh, which has been you know, tremendously rewarding. Um, and, uh, I, you know, after, um, you know, do, doing all sorts of different kinds of research, it got the chance to come back, uh, to Florida, uh, to uh, be a professor at university of Miami. And then after that, um, worked at the national uh, park service in the Everglades, uh, working on the, uh, Everglades restoration project there. And, uh, you know, just in the time between growing up there and then coming back and, and, and working there, you know, to me, it was obvious to see what the, the sea level had changed 
uh, there in, in Florida. But, um, you know, it is, it is a gradual change. Uh, but if you're used to being in the environment and fishing the shorelines in particular, it, you, you just can't miss it. Uh, but then as part of the, uh, the comprehensive Everglades restoration program, of course, with a focus on water and water budgets and where water, where water is, where it isn't, and the timing of, of all that water, um, you know, the, these are also things that uh, we need to bring into the planning process. And that was one of the things that really, um, you know, in, in that project and in working with government to try to figure out how to incorporate climate change into that restoration effort was one of the things that really brought uh, climate change and water together for me. Martha Shulsky, the floods of 2019 were historic and unprecedented. Tell us about the scale and impact for people who didn't experience them or may have forgotten that they happened. 2019 was really an epic year in flooding, particularly in the Midwest. Yeah, it sure was, Greg. It was a record-setting year, and and timing was everything with this particular event. And I'm from Nebraska originally, and have lived here at different times in my life. And we all know that we do have wild weather in the Midwest, and things like this do happen. But the scale of 2019 was just was just epic. And uh, it, what led to it, the antecedent conditions, the conditions in place when the storm did come along, that had a lot to do with the scale of the impact. We had a cold overall and wet winter. We had uh, one of the snowiest winters on record in Lincoln and Omaha, frozen soils, saturated soils. 2019 was one of the wettest years on record for the upper Midwest and snowpack sitting on the ground, uh, lots of ice in the rivers. So the conditions were ripe such that when we did get that strong storm system move across the country, which is not so uncommon to have a storm of that proportion, but the setup was there. And to have that rapid snow melt, um, we're just not able to handle the water at one time that it did come. And so the, the spatial and temporal scale of this was, was quite large. That period was uh, January to May of 2019 was the wettest on record in the United States, causing you know floods, as we've described. One of the farmers whose livelihood was threatened is Jack Mulliken, who lives in northeast Nebraska, just outside the town of Nickerson. He farms corn, soybeans, and this year, as he tries to recover, even a little bit of hemp. We asked him to talk about what happened and what he thinks could be done to protect farms like his in the future. We had a lot of snowfall in February. And then uh, about the middle of March, 13th of March to be exact, we had a 70 degree day. Everything started to melt. We have this hillside that is full of terraces. And of course they were full of snow. So the water just went right over the terraces. And I went out and started cleaning them out with a loader to try to stop it, but uh, it was too late. I, we had 600 acres we couldn't plant because it was just totally devastated. It's taken till this spring to get things finished. It's been pretty difficult. I don't think you need any big flood control measures taken. You know, the chance of an event like that happening again, I think is pretty rare. I don't believe it's man-made climate change. It's just the way things are. You just have to adapt to it. And that's the way we live out here. We just deal with whatever comes at us. The big thing is, like on the Missouri River, we have all those dams up and down that river. And the Army Corps of Engineers needs to rewrite their playbook on that a little bit because we get into the problem with environmentalists wanting to keep a certain amount of water in these dams so to protect these fish and these birds and snails and whatever else they're worried about. And then when something like this happens, it's out of the Corps' hands. They can't release the water 
over the winter when they need to to prepare for this snow melt in the spring. They put those dams in to help with flood control. Well, now it's turned into recreation and environmental issues. I don't know how to fix that because there's, it's such a powerful political movement. I don't know who can uh, get in the way of it and turn it around. That was Jack Mulliken, a farmer who lives outside Nickerson, Nebraska. Julia Kamari Drapkin, if you ran into, had a chance to meet Jack Mulliken, what would you say to him? Oh, I would sit down with coffee with Jack and talk. Um, one of the things that I think when it comes to understanding flood risk or climate risk, what it requires is time. Iterative dialogue over time and deep listening. Deep listening amongst all stakeholders. Farmers, fishermen, the people that we associate potentially in, in kind of the way that we've parodied the climate conversation. It's, we say, oh, well, they are climate deniers. They don't believe in science. A farmer or a fisherman knows more science than any climate modeler, modeler sitting in front of their computer who hasn't been outside in a long time can. Um, the idea that, that farmers and, and ranchers don't understand what's happening in the environment is completely and totally flawed. It's the lensing in which they're seeing and understanding those changes um, and the way it's been politicized. So if there was an opportunity to sit down with him as well as some of the members of the Army Corps who are doing flood control, we can have a really great conversation and understand the different um, the math and the calculations going into a lot of these decisions. And that's why we created IC Change, which is its own social media platform for communities to gather their stories and their data so that they can have their own evidence of how change is happening year to year. So it's much more legible. And we actually developed that from ranchers in Colorado who don't believe in climate change. Because when you ask a rancher or a farmer how they make year-to-year -year decisions, they will go and bring out a notebook with all the detailed notes about weather and climate on their farm or ranch. And when you sink that to a much more community pool of knowledge, wherein potentially someone from the Army Corps who's talking about uh, water level controls can actually converse, you know, talk about what their concerns are for that particular year, then you have a deeper empathy and understanding and a more nuanced understanding of year-to-year -year risk. Martha Shulsky, um, you go around and, and talk to farmers and rotary uh, clubs uh, in Oklahoma. So how do you have these hard conversations with people that are in a very different place coming from perhaps the lived experience that they have that may not be quite the same as an academic scientist? Yeah, I think how you frame it and how you talk about it uh, makes a big difference. And the content doesn't necessarily have to be different, but how it is presented does make a difference. Um, so I, I tend to do my research and do background and, and understand about the group that I'm talking to and frame the message such that they, they do care about it. You know, what does that group care about? Let's connect those dots to climate change because climate touches everything. It it's, touches all of us. And in some cases, maybe you don't even talk about climate change. Um, to this person, maybe you talk about risk management and profitability and decreasing soil erosion and uh, making sure their farm ground is up out of the river bottom so it's less likely to be vulnerable to these to these large-scale flooding events. And in certain settings, there are angles that you can take that is not controversial, like your health, like extreme weather events. And I, I try and remind people that weather events, that's how climate change is manifested. I can't feel that 
that average temperatures in Nebraska have warmed about a degree and a half. But what I can feel is the number of 90 degree days are going up or those dew point temperatures are going up or we got a lot of heavy rainfall recently. So uh, so those are the ways that you make it tangible and local and relevant. Ed Kearns, how many Americans are facing the risks of floods driven by human-caused climate change and don't realize it? Unfortunately, too many. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, from the First Street Foundation uh, viewpoint, so our, our foundation was created to communicate this, this climate change risk. Um, and uh, we picked flood uh, for, the, for the first uh, risk to consider because it's the most expensive, most pervasive across our country. And so one of our challenges was to, uh, you know, do a, a current risk assessment for today to see, you know, uh, the letter, let everybody know what the risk is today and what it's going to be in the future. So, uh, you know, I kind of equate it to walking into the middle of a movie, right? And so climate change is the movie. So the first thing we have to try to um, convey to folks is what's going on? What's the plot? Uh, how, how did we get here? Uh, and then we're going to tell them about where this movie's going, where, 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 the, where the plot's going to go and how the movie's going to end. And so, uh, but, you know, taking a uh, taking a communication approach that's focused on the individual to try to make uh, all this complexity of climate change, climate models, and and uh, hydrodynamic models, hydraulic models, and and storm surge, and all these different kinds of of flooding uh, that um, you know are combined for a total flood risk to try to get that information down to a, a consumable uh, level for the individual is, is a challenge. And at first, what we try to do is, is boil that, all that information down, all that risk assessment down into one number between one and 10, one being minimal risk, 10 being extreme risk, and to, to let the individual property owner. So our, our, our the First Street uh, Foundation flood model uh, has, has created a flood risk assessment for every single one of the 142 million properties in the contiguous U.S. today. And we're, we're targeting through floodfactor.com, that individual that needs to understand at their property, at their home, what's their risk today and what's it going to be um, in 30 years and boil that down, that cumulative risk and severity down to a single number. It is to wake them up to this reality and then urge them and point them to, to resources where they can find out more about their local uh, community, their, their local situation, their local flood risk, and, and really start to understand it and then take steps to mitigate that risk. Julia Kamari Drapkin, what do you think about the First Street model? Do you think, do you have questions or concerns about its uh, its accuracy or what's under the hood? Oh, always. I always want to look under the hood of a model because when you sit with a modeler and you sit with IC change data, you add granularity. And um, what I mean by that is you add details that allow the model, you know, models are make assumptions about risk and they're averaging large amounts of time and space and intersections and and they can't always really account for your true risk. And so what we, our approach to modeling, whether it's flood modeling or heat modeling or climate modeling, is to take community knowledge about those particular places paired with observation over time about impact and then compare it to the model and integrate it with the model to uh, validate it. We call it validation, model validation. In some places, FEMA has, um, like New Orleans or Miami, spent more time because of repeat uh, loss. And so there's a little bit more of mapping in certain places where Ocean City, New Jersey, where we have a very um, active community on ICchange.org documenting both rain and tidal flooding. They haven't had good mapping in a long, long time and First Street Foundation um, is provided added service. So I think what we are looking for in the age of models or AIs or here's flood risk on a phone is to interpret data as a conversation 
where community members have very much a role to play in annotating that data and making it more correct. In, in fact, in creating incentive structures for communities to invest in adaptation and infrastructure improvements. Because you know, when we're using a, an AI or a model or an algorithm to tell us about flood risk and that's fixed and that becomes like fixed knowledge that is immutable, then there's no incentive for the city of Miami or Miami Beach to invest in the infrastructure and get the value that they're looking to achieve with it, let alone a homeowner. So um, we added that kind of add that that value add that context the annotation the the validation of a flood model. We also add impacts that you can't see from a flood model when it comes to there's pollution in my yard and my kids can't play from all this flooding, or I can't get to work, or I can't bus stops running. And then we also create room again for people like Jeff uh, in Nebraska to add his detailed knowledge. Because one of the things about all these folks who are being impacted, particularly in the Midwest, down south, in, in the Mississippi Delta, and in the Gulf of Mexico, is that there are so, there's so much knowledge about how an environment behaves, that if we create a system in which a flood modeler, FEMA, First Street Foundation, the Army Corps of Engineers can actually generate knowledge through dialogue with community members, and they won't feel like as if they are prisoners to, to math, math that is often wrong. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about harnessing knowledge and experience to battle climate change. We're actually up against our own brains a little bit in terms of how we understand change over time. You can remember last year's weather, and you can remember this year's weather, but five years ago, can you tell me what the winter was doing? That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the increasing threat of climate-induced flooding. My guests are Julia Kamari-Drapkin, founder of ICChange.org. Ed Kearns, Chief Data Officer with First Street Foundation, and Martha Shelsky, Nebraska State Climatologist. When cities spend big bucks to arm themselves against climate risk, they naturally want the best return on their investment. In many cases, that means prioritizing protection of wealthy neighborhoods over the less privileged. Yeah, so a lot of cities, uh, as they're trying to make these decisions about where to uh, where to armor their um, their cities, perhaps from the sea, where, where to install levees or pumps to, uh, you know, these large adaptation features that we mentioned. These are enormously expensive infrastructure uh, to, to put in place. And so, yeah, a lot of the financial models may include, you know, neighborhood uh, values in order to figure out where to, where to move the infrastructure here or there. So one of the things that First Street is uh, very adamant about is, is democratizing the, the information so that we're removing the asymmetry and in information that's available to these communities in these neighborhoods, right? So most most neighborhoods today um, you know, may not be aware of what their flood risk is. Most of them aren't aware of the adaptations that surround them. Uh, it's one of the things that we take for granted that uh, you know many of our cities are, are very well engineered, great uh, civil servants that are, you know, uh, have worked hard to protect our, our neighborhoods. 
but with that comes a lack of awareness. And so by making um, the, the flood risk information available to everyone freely, uh, we're hoping to level that playing field. On top of that, uh, what uh, First Street Foundation has created is something we call the Flood Lab, which is a group of about 100 researchers now that are now actively using our data. And they're looking at societal and economic uh, questions such as that. Are, are there disadvantaged communities uh, that have more flood risk than, than we understand? What, what is that flood risk? Can we quantify that? Can we start to, um, through the power of data, communicate what uh, the actual risk is for these different situations? and arm the decision makers with the right information they need to make the right decisions. Julia, you live at sea level near water in a swampy area of New Orleans. How do you feel about that? And, you know, New Orleans, we spent, what, tens of billions of dollars recently after Hurricane Katrina to armor the town. Is that holding up? We're still here, right? I bought my mortgage in uh, 2013. I think um, communities like mine, um, Miami, Norfolk, Charleston, Ocean City, New Jersey, always shout out to them, uh, communities in the Midwest, um, if you are experiencing persistent flooding or if you're experiencing risk, then we are learning fast and first. Uh, we are a first community, if you will, First Street Foundation, <laughs> in terms of understanding these events and details and adapting to them. Um, innovating around that, understanding what mechanisms we need to, to, to use, um, the impacts of those um, of federal policy, the impacts of investment, um, understanding the impacts on every level of our community. And um, also understanding that, the, that our environment uh, is not just the, the natural environment. I live on a swampy area. I'm learning. I learned early in coming back to New Orleans, having started I See Change in rural Colorado, that um, living close to water in New Orleans is actually a great idea because we are subsiding. And uh, by not having saturated, hydrated soils in a swampy environment, you actually are going to be in low ground. You need living closer to the water puts you, you have elevation, you have a natural elevation. So I'm at zero, but my neighbors across the street are negative three, negative six, negative seven. And that happens in the Midwest in, in terms of being on a river uh, and having that natural levee plane and how that natural levee plane works. You know, and to be able to adapt to climate change, we need to understand the natural environment in which your city exists. And again, we try and encourage that um, conversation and dialogue and I see change about that. But it also means understanding the built environment and the social environment, because all of those combined create risk. And when we're only looking at the flood models or like an economic valuation of what is value in terms of what to protect, then we're making mistakes. So in New Orleans, we are protecting the city, but um, when we don't invest or prioritize infrastructure to protect communities of color, then we are actually not valuing the cultural and social fabric of the city, a city that before COVID had 13 million visitors to come and eat our food and enjoy our music and enjoy our culture. And by pushing those folks out, we are pretty much doing economic damage to our city over time. Same with the, the folks who are fishing uh, in the Louisiana coast, who for the last three years, because of flooding and rain in the Midwest, we've had our flood infrastructure, the Bonnie Carey Spillway, open for the last three years. Historic. This thing has never been open in this. Like it was open twice or three times in the last century, but it's been open three times in the last three years. And that fresh water 
coming through the system with nitrogen and fertilizer from Midwestern farmers has devastated the oystermen and the shrimpers. And I promise you, they've been talking to the Army Corps of Engineers about this for decades. And that information could have been reacted to decades ago. We could have planned for this economically, socially, culturally. So I guess in, in, the, in, the, in the math of where infrastructure is placed and what it protects and how it is valued, there needs to be a consideration for the things that are not easy math. Um, and and that, that really is how we truly understand, you know, there's a, new, there's a new way of doing economics. And I think that, that it, you know, that's very lofty, but it plays out functionally in very real ways for communities every day. Martha Shulsky, speaking of uh, infrastructure, there's a lot of dams in the Midwest that, uh, you know, a lot of people live within 20 miles of a flood control dam. Many of those dams are nearing the end of their useful life, just as the states are expected to experience more intense rain events. So are those dams safe? And what's how's that going to play out? Um, and should we maybe rethink the way water is controlled and dammed in a, in a world that was built in a world that was very predictable in terms of precipitation, and now we have this very volatile world. Yeah, I mean, the short answer would be no and yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, taking a look at, at dams as well as, as other infrastructure in the cities and how our cities are built, are they are they able to sustain um, these high intensity precipitation events? You know, if if it's going to fail for current climate events, it's absolutely going to fail for future climate events. I mean, we can only expect it to get wetter, more extreme precipitation events. And so certainly our, our planning efforts, if they're not incorporating these climate projections, if you're not planning for the climate of 2040 or 2060, then there's going to be failure. There's going to be impacts uh, in a very extreme way, perhaps. So um, I, I've worked on a few projects, uh, not dams specifically, but I've worked with uh, cities in across uh, four states in the Midwest on how best to incorporate climate change uh, into the planning efforts and, and learned a lot about that and, and developed a tool um, in a participatory way with these cities to make something that is useful to them and that they will take to their city council or to the, their mayor or the, this information kind of distilling these climate projections in a way that they can put it into actual planning efforts. Not something that as climatologists we think is important, but something that from the planning perspective that that is useful and usable. So absolutely, it's critically important. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers recently, just in June of 2020, unveiled a plan to protect Miami-Dade County from hurricane storm surges over the next 50 years with floodgates across rivers, mile-long flood wall on its upscale waterfront, cost nearly $5 billion. I know this is a bit at the edge of, of your modeling, but where is all the money going to come from? And what, what are we looking at in terms of the, the price tag to protect American property from the, the floods that we know are coming? Yeah, well, you know, where the money will come from is, you know, from, of course, from our taxes. But um, these are going to be some really important uh, you know, decisions for communities to make with the federal government. The federal government, in this case, is, is, is putting a solution on the table, plan on the table and asking for comment. And as Julia was saying, there's a lot of wonderful people in Miami, a lot, of, a lot of great water engineers and a lot of civil servants that care very deeply about this. And they've gotten lots of great feedback going into the into the core process. So it's going to take some number of years to go through this. But 
Uh, it is the community's decision about how the uh, city is going to pr be protected. The technology is there, uh, but these investment decisions are going to have to be a community effort. And so I would just urge everybody in, in Miami, especially to participate in that process. But we're just not going to be able to afford to protect and defend every piece of property from either coastal, you know, ocean sea level rise or from flooding rivers. Managed retreat implicitly means that some people are not going to be protected. People are going to have to be bought out, move. There's a story there. Is it truly to say how that's going to play out? Well, I think that managed retreat, which is, is very challenging. And, and a lot of folks are assuming that these conversations are data-driven. I think that goes back to what we were been talking about earlier. If you march into my community and show me a map where everything is red in 2050 or 2070, that is a paralyzing experience. That does not actually generate the kinds of impacts that you would like to see, which is community members having conversations about what to do. It, it actually is a conversation ender. So when you ha create space for, for residents to really have conversations about what they've been seeing over time and how it is impacting them and what they want to do about it, that's when you can get into, okay, does it make sense for us to figure out a way for us to, to move? Nobody has figured that out. We are being asked to do that kind of work in terms of um, having community members use IC Change to, to, to have those very complicated and nuanced dialogues. But it is, there's no singular recipe for success on it, so much as it is a community dialogue and decision. It will happen naturally over time as people face persistent risk and choose to leave a place. And it, there needs to be policies in place. There needs to be planning in place for who, who, which communities are going to grow adjacent to those communities that are retreating. There's going to be really interesting questions and conversations about how to undevelop the coast. And there will be innovations and, and opportunities therein. Ed Kearns, you know, I looked up the National Mall, uh, you know, because there's some suggestion that the Potomac River is, you know, encroaching on the, this iconic uh, place in our country's uh, history, our na national capital. What are some of the places that are really iconic in the American mind, like the National Mall, that are, are at risk? Yeah, well, I, I haven't gone through and looked at all the different places, but you know, a lot of that area, of course, was a wetland when it was <laughs> when it was created way back when. Uh, but main thing to get across is that you know this uh, this idea of stationarity is is dead. Uh, that you know, uh, ten years from now is not going to look like today, and it's certainly not going to look like it was ten years ago. And and this goes for all these things that you know, uh, uh, for national monuments and these kinds of uh, you know parks, uh, you know landmarks that we've all taken for granted. These things with with rising tides. Uh, with increased rainfalls, heavier rainfalls, these are things that the change is coming, and uh, and it kind of shocks us all, right? Because it's it's climate change is not intuitive. Back to like Martha's point, it, it's you have to kind of explain it in a different way. Even for a, a scientist, we're still human. It's still not intuitive to us either. That's why we lean on the science, and we lean on the probabilities, we lean on the numbers because th this is telling the story that as humans we have a hard time grasping. Because in our lifetimes, we're used to seeing change with our eyes at a certain rate and at a certain scale. And climate change is just different. It's at scales of time and space that is hard for any one individual to understand. And also remembering it because you, the human brain is really binary in the sense that you can't remember, you can remember last year's weather, 
and you can remember this year's weather, but five years ago, can you tell me what the winter was doing? We're actually up against our own brains a little bit in terms of how we understand change over time. The social science suggests that we adapt and we've been working with social scientists to, to kind of analyze some of our data on IC change about how people describe these events over time. And it's actually its own quantitative data. But the human brain uh, adapts within a window of two to eight years, right? We Suddenly, there were people in Ocean City, New Jersey, who've been flooding since the 90s, who stopped considering that a special thing, and they stopped posting about it on social media. But on IC change, we prompt them, hey, we heard about flooding. There's a tidal event. There's a rain event check your rain gauge, show us which intersection. And over time, we have that accumulated data for people to see the extent changing, the subtle changes over time. Because two to eight years, when we have 10 years to actually do something about this problem, isn't going to fly. Our greatest asset to adapt is also our greatest vulnerability. This is Climate One. We've been talking about growing floods turbocharged by a climate that is destabilized by burning fossil fuels. In the future, scientists say we can expect wet periods to be wetter and dry periods to be drier. Coming up, the dry side of that equation, managing water scarcity. The problem with water is we treat it as if it's you know inexhaustible, right? We can always find it. We can always move it from somewhere else. Well, that game is really starting to be up. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing the resource that makes life on Earth possible, fresh water. Joining us now to talk about how that resource is managed throughout the world is Betsy Otto, Global Water Director for the World Resources Institute. Water insecurity is already a huge problem in many parts of the world, but the current COVID-19 pandemic, with its ubiquitous refrain of wash your hands, has added another level of urgency. About 3 billion people, 40% of the world's population, don't have adequate water in their households to wash their hands to the degree for 20 seconds that most of us are just accustomed to be able to do when we turn on the tap. Imagine that. And so what are those people doing? Are, um, what are the accommodations and are they getting sick more because of their lack of access to water? Well, you know, no doubt they're at far greater risk and whether or not they're getting sick more is hard to actually say. It's hard to imagine that they're not um, and that they are certainly more vulnerable. Um, a lot of countries are doing everything that they can, especially in the developing world where a lot of these folks live um, in very crowded circumstances to provide hand washing stations and so on. It's of course difficult then to socially distance in those places, but we're talking about places where people have, you know, multiple generations living in a single small household, maybe a space of one or two rooms. So social distancing is already very difficult, um, you know, for those folks. Uh, it's a very challenging thing. And we think of this as a, you know, developing uh, country problem, but also even in California, there are people who do not have reliable access to drinking water. So, so how much of this is actually in the United States? It's a pretty significant issue in the United States, too. I think it's been a hidden one for a long time. You know, people might have known about um, some of the challenges that Flint, Michigan faced with lead in service lines and the lead uh, poisoning that happened for especially children. Terrible story. Uh, but there have been shutoffs, uh, water shutoffs in cities for a long time for poor people who weren't able to pay their water bills. Or there are areas in California where there just isn't good access even to piped water. So that's a problem as well. But in places where uh, city water utilities are really going to be struggling, 
a lot of water utilities depend on for their income uh, commercial uses of water, for example, restaurants, uh, you know, hotels, etc. And so, you know, industries that have been either shut down or much reduced schedules. So it's really challenging for them to have enough money just to run their own systems. And of course, in the U.S., our water infrastructure systems have been run down for a long, long time. So it's a kind of perfect storm of a lot of challenges. Right. And uh, we have aging infrastructure, whether it's bridges or just about everything else in this country. We have underinvested in our infrastructure compared to other other economies. And now with uh, spiraling national debt, you know, trillions of dollars being run up on our kids' credit cards, are we going to have money to invest in water infrastructure for the future? I think it's a it's a scary question. It's a scary prospect that we won't. I mean, if you think about something like $10 trillion has already gone out from the world's economies just to address the immediate impacts of the COVID pandemic. That's not even speaking about what's going to be necessary to invest in recovering economies going forward. So it's, we're talking about serious money, real money. And of course, we spent a couple of trillion in this country alone. I think the key question is here, too, is how to build back better as we think about where we invest, whether that's in renewable energy on the energy side or the kinds of things that we can do with respect to water infrastructure, what can we do to ensure that our systems can operate more effectively, that they're more resilient to the kinds of climate shocks that we're likely to see in the future? And that includes things like investing in forested watersheds, which are 60% of our drinking water in the U.S. comes from forested watersheds. We don't even think about those as being infrastructure, but in fact, they're super important green infrastructure. So there are things that we could do differently uh, to just, first of all, ensure that we have more resilient systems in the first place. And then water utilities are really going to have to take different approaches in many ways on how they manage their systems going forward. We kind of got used to over years not doing adequate operations and maintenance all the way along. And those customers who can afford to pay are going to need to be willing to pay more. We certainly pay more for other things like our cell phones and so on. We've gotten used to paying very low rates, honestly, in many places for water. And that can't necessarily uh, continue. Water is a, a human right uh, identified by the United Nations. And it's also a commodity that's bought and sold. And there's, you know, gajillion number of bottled water sold every day, every year. Um, so should water prices go up to better reflect uh, its value to us? You know, water is life and it's really underpriced. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's the, the paradox of water and diamonds, right? Diamonds have no real intrinsic value except for a couple of very small purposes because they're so hard and yet they're, they're worth so much, right? And water is essential to all life and yet we underprice it in part because we see it as a human right. But unfortunately, that means we then allow it to be used for any purpose at an extremely low or no cost. California is a great example of that. There's essentially no cost for water that's used other than the cost to pump it and to move it around, treat it, and so on. And that's really not tenable. It ends up creating all kinds of perverse incentives to spend our precious water on things that don't necessarily make sense or that aren't that don't have economic value relative to the value of that water. So we need to start to get those price signals you know, in place better. A lot of cities actually have inclining block rates. They increase rates for water use beyond basic household needs. So if you want to use a lot of water, for example, to irrigate and water your landscapes, then you should pay a lot more money you know, for that. So there are ways to do this. There are ways to actually direct the price signals in the right way to get people, first of all, to invest in conservation and efficiency, efficiency, and secondly, not to use water, for example, to grow alfalfa in the desert, which makes no sense. But we do it all over the place. 
alfalfa that yeah it's uh, shipped to Japan to feed cows yeah there's there's question those things although you know some people will argue that you know almonds get a bad rap in California that they're actually justified that there's you know they're they're um, higher margin crops higher value added crops right that those actually make sense according to a capitalistic economy yeah that's a, that's a tough one that's a complicated one for sure but I mean I think you need to take into account all of those different factors you know what is the value add of the crop that's being grown or the product that's being produced with the water that goes into it but the other thing that's really important here and it's a big part of what we look at at WRI uh, World Resources Institute through our aqueduct tool is to understand the place-based nature of the water demand and supply. So alfalfa grown in the desert makes no sense. Alfalfa grown in very water-rich areas, well, you might argue that that makes more sense, right? So you need to think about the context in which water is going into a pound of beef or you know, a bale of cotton. And that's a really important component to this picture as well. And do you think governments should come in and say, you can grow this there and that, that there? I think we should at least be sending the right kinds of economic and price signals so that those kinds of decisions are being made more readily. We use the example um, of Australia, which in its Murray-Darling River Basin, which is the primary water source for a lot of the country's agricultural areas and for its cities, they've actually set up a water trading approach where they've said, this is how much water is available. We'll allocate it to all the different users. And then if there's a use that's of a higher value that you want to trade your water to, there's a means by which that kind of movement of water can happen, allocating it more to higher value uses. So the government set up that system. They don't necessarily tell people what they can and can't do with it, but they've created a market system that allows for that to happen more efficiently. I think we need to create more systems like that, but we need to do the precursor step to that. You know, If we were gonna have, for example, climate change, cap and trade, for example, or a way of saying we want to limit greenhouse gases to X amount, you have to have a cap first. And the problem with water is we treat it as, as if it's you know, inexhaustible, right? We can always find it or we can always move it from somewhere else. Well, that game is really starting to be up. And I think that you know, people are starting to understand that that's not true anymore. But you first need to understand what's a sustainable yield. California is actually starting to look at this with respect to groundwater. It's a very complex you know, issue, but that's what you need to do first. And then within that, under that cap, then you can start to think about how you're allocating water more efficiently. How is climate disrupting freshwater access? We've heard earlier in this program about too much water, floods, uh, and we also know that there's going to be more extremes, not enough water. How is climate going to drive water scarcity in what parts of the United States? Well, certainly um, in the desert southwest uh, and to some degree in California, we've already seen the kinds of um, you know, extreme droughts that California recently went through. We're seeing much reduced rainfall, and a lot of the climate models have predicted that. And in fact, that's what's coming to pass. So we're seeing decreased snowpack in the mountains and decreased rainfall. But what we see actually in a lot of places are just incredible um, disruptions to what had been the sort of normal hydrology, the normal precipitation patterns in a given place. So we're seeing more extremes. We're seeing water come in the form of more extreme, intense storms in places and then long droughts, often in the same, in the same places. I mean, so where I live in the Washington, D.C. area, we've experienced that many, many times. And those extremes are getting more extreme. And this is true the world over. So we're seeing real differences in when the, the timing, the amount of precipitation that's arriving. So it's very difficult to plan and it's very difficult to understand, you know, how you manage a water system in those in those kinds of circumstances. 
What we're also seeing though, and this is a very important point, it's not just climate change, it's also that demand for water is increasing in a lot of places. So it's that demand and supply relationship. In fact, when we've done some analysis and we projected out to 2030 and looked at what the climate impacts could be in much of the world, the primary driver of water stress, that is the water scarcity associated with the supply versus demand, is driven by demand. People using, you know, eating more beef, using more water, more uh, electricity. Of course, power plants require, thermoelectric power plants require a huge amount of water for cooling. Hydropower plants use a lot of water. A lot of it evaporates in the reservoirs behind the power uh, dam. So, you know, all of those kinds of factors are also part of what we're seeing in these, you can call them climate disruptions, but there are other factors at play too. And how big a risk is that to corporations? A lot of water is used to make textiles, Coca-Cola. You know, is corporate America looking at water risk as something that uh, they need to manage beyond the fence lines of their factories? More and more. And in fact, it's interesting. In some ways, it's the private sector that has awakened more to the question around water stress and water risks than in other sectors. Government has been slower to respond. Companies, because they always have to be thinking about material risks to their businesses, and they've experienced the impacts of disruptions when they couldn't get water or there was too much water from flooding, uh, understand what that's like. So they've been doing a lot of analysis, many, many companies, to try to understand where in the world are they facing those kinds of risks. Again, many companies are using WRI's Aqueduct tool to do that. So we work with a lot of companies. And investors are also starting to ask very tough questions of companies. And I'll give you an interesting example of this. We did some analysis in uh, India where we looked at all the thermoelectric power plants in India. And we showed that in 2016, I think it was, they lost uh, 1.6 terawatts of generating power just because of water shortages, a billion dollars in just direct revenues that they weren't able to generate from those power plants, not even all of the multiplier effects of that loss of power, right? That was enough to run Sri Lanka for a year. That woke policymakers up. We were able to do that analysis at an asset power plant level and then aggregate it up to companies. And investors paid a lot of attention to that. So investors are now starting to seek this information. We just did some recent work um, with BlackRock where we looked at real estate investment trusts, where they did using some aqueduct data. And they found that I think it was two thirds of all of U.S. real estate investment trust properties are at high risk of water stress by their estimation by 2030. In other places in the world, almost all of those real estate properties in real estate investment trusts are at very high risk of water stress. Now, of course, they're also very high risk in many of those places of flooding and catastrophic flooding too. So they're being really you know, hit by both sides of that. So there's, there's a lot of attention being paid to this in the private sector. Right. And I read uh, some of your work. I read a term that I'd never seen before that is quite interesting, you know, water bankruptcy, which really kind of has a resonance, right? Because uh, we think of Water, well, yeah, there's there's droughts and you kind of certainly living in California, you, you tighten your belt a little bit, you get through it, then you relax your belt a little bit. What is water bankruptcy and where is it happening? Well, I think, you know, where, where there are not systems in place, which fortunately California does have, frankly, a fairly good and robust water planning system where in bad droughts, you do start to tighten your belt and you do start to change where water can be allocated. And, and it's quite remarkable how well California as an economy did during that four or five year, thousand year drought. Um, in many parts of the world, that, that doesn't exist. And so India, for example, um, is a frightening case. India has very little in the way of uh, surface water that's not already overtapped. 
So it has gone to groundwater stores to, you know, for industry to grow, uh, you know, agricultural uh, products and so on. And it is, if you look at many of its groundwater basins, it has, it's really depleting them at rates that are really, really scary when you consider that they have over a billion people and a rapidly growing economy. So they could hit water bankruptcy. And a couple of years ago, the major national planning agency for the government of India basically said that this was their existential crisis. That if they don't solve this, if they don't find ways to do that, they will be in serious trouble. Are there bright spots in, in water? Where do you see bright spots in the way that that we're managing and valuing water properly? Yeah, I'll name a couple. Corporates are, are one. We're seeing some really exciting work being done. I'll, I'll um, mention Cargill, big agricultural uh, firm based here in the U.S., operates over the world, uh, one of the largest firms in agricultural production. And they've actually set some targets that are based in the context of the places where they're operating and where water is an issue in those places to actually try to reduce their overall footprint and even replenish some of the water uh, in those areas. And that we're seeing more and more companies wanting to do that in the same way that maybe they're setting greenhouse gas targets, where they actually want to be even net negative and so I think water is the next frontier in that. I see that as a really positive uh, outcome. They see themselves as, you know, that's important for their business, but also as actors within communities if they want to continue in those places. I would say another place is that you don't, we don't hear much about is in Ethiopia, second largest country in Africa, rapidly growing, very young population, very rapidly um, expanding economy at 8 and 10% growth rates. And a number of years ago, if you have to go back probably several decades ago, uh, during a previous regime that was in, in command, in power in, in Ethiopia, there was an area in northwest Ethiopia called Tigray, which was a kind of a moonscape. People had cut down all the trees. They had just depleted the soils. Uh, people were leaving because there was nowhere to, no way to stay. And water was a huge issue there. And so as a community in this area, in part because they were also fighting as guerrillas against the government Marxist regime, they by hand created, um, they did tree planting, they put in wells to sort of capture rainwater and infiltrate water into groundwater. And it is now an uh, area where people move in, they migrate into Tigray. And what one of the primary benefits of this was soil fertility increased, agricultural yields increased. Um, businesses based on agricultural production have grown up. It's a kind of somewhat rare, but a very replicable example of what we could do more. We can go in and restore landscapes and we can actually improve our water systems. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about managing water resources globally and right here in America's heartland. We just heard from Betsy Otto, Global Water Director at the World Resources Institute. My other guests today were Julia Kamari Drapkin, CEO and founder of ICChange.org, Ed Kearns, Chief Data Officer with First Street Foundation, and Martha Shelsky, Nebraska State Climatologist. This program was generously underwritten by the Water Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a five-star rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. 
Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.